Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Hey listeners, welcome back to Buried Motives. We're so glad you're joining us for another week. Or if this is your first time, welcome. Yeah, we love getting new listeners and we appreciate the ones that have been around the block with us for a little while. We're going to see how today goes for recording. Melissa is recovering from a head cold headache. She's on some good meds right now. And I stayed up till three in the morning finishing the most recent series of This Is Us. You watched the new season. I did. And I was like, I'm only going to watch one episode. And how many of us tell ourselves that lie? How many times? So bad for you, Christy. I know. There was three episodes left I had in the season and I started to cry. And then I was like, well, that's it. I'm just finishing it now. It was so good. (laughs) I haven't watched it yet. I do love that show, though. Yeah, nothing like a good cry. At 3 (laughs) a.m. At 3 in the morning. It's a whole cathartic moment when you watch that show. It's true. The writers are really good for it. They are really good. That's one of the few shows where the first 10 minutes watching it, I was immediately hooked. I was like, I love this show already. Yeah, I think I was the same way. Mm-hmm. But today we're going to talk about murder, Christy. Not shows that make you cry. No, that's true. This is a whole nother reason for wanting to cry. <laughs> because I have a serial killer for us today. And I'm going to preface this case with a few things pertaining to his killings, which we will be discussing throughout the episode. First, he managed to get away with murder for over three decades. Ooh. Second, he actually went to the authorities years before he was finally stopped, asking them for help. And they didn't help him. Not the way that he needed to be. I believe he was a murderer who really didn't originally want to be one. So much so that he actually asked for help. He said, I have these urges. I need help. Oh, that is super interesting. Mm -hmm. Third, he was a missionary killer, meaning he wanted to eliminate a certain type of person. Fourth, he committed his first murder at the tender age of eight. What? So he started as a child who killed and then grew up to be a full-on serial killer. Was the murderer as a child? Was it out of necessity? Was it self-defense? Was it retaliation for something that somebody did to him? Tell me, Christy. (laughs) The latter. We'll get to it, though. And one last thing, our fifth point would be that some of his motivation to kill stemmed from his first given name. What? His parents should have listened more closely to the Johnny Cash song, A Boy Named Sue. (gasps) They named him Sue? No, but close. Oh. And I'm just joking when I say that because the song A Boy Named Sue was written years after our murderer was born. But his name would cause him some childhood trauma amongst other things that also caused him trauma. I was able to find court documents, newspaper articles, and university case studies about our dirtbag, as well as a lot of information written by author Michael Newton, who spent weeks interviewing the killer about his crimes and then wrote a book titled Silent Rage about this case. So I'm excited to share what I learned with you. I didn't know about this case before, so I'm not sure how well known it is. I kind of stumbled across it. I love it when you find cases like that that aren't well known, but have been studied so in depth. Mm Mm-hmm. And maybe it is well known, but it wasn't well known to me. And I just found it so interesting. All of it is just mind-blowing to me a little bit. Carol Edward Cole was born on May 9th, 1938. Coincidentally, in the case involving Carla Homolka that I recently covered, her father's name was also Carol, but spelt in a less feminine way. Homolka's was K-A-R-E-L versus the more feminine C-A-R-R-O-L-L which is the Carol that we're going to be talking about. Hmm. Later in life, Carol Cole would go by Edward, Eddie, or Ed, but grew up being called Carol. So we're not talking about a boy named Sue, but we're talking about a boy named Carol. Carol Carol was born in Sioux City, Iowa. What I found interesting about Sioux City is that it is so close to where Iowa meets Nebraska as well as South Dakota. If I searched it correctly in maps... Sioux City is only a nine-minute drive to the Nebraska border and an eight-minute drive to the South Dakota border. And so that completes our geography lesson for the day. I just found that really interesting. (laughs) Interestingly, none of Carol's killings occurred in any of these states. 
He killed in California, Nevada, Oklahoma, Texas, and Wyoming, more of the southern states. So he got around. Mm-hmm. Carol was born to his father, Laverne, and his mother, Vesta. He had an older brother, who I believe his name was Richard, but I only found that in one report, and a younger sister, making him the middle child. And I'll just add in here that Carol might have had more sisters born after Carol had grown up, according to one source that I found, but he grew up with it being just the three of them. I couldn't confirm that he had more sisters later. Bonus children? Yeah. Carol's little sister was born the year after he was. And soon afterward, his family moved to California for his father's work. His father, Laverne, worked in a shipyard. Soon after moving, in 1939, World War II broke out and Laverne left his young family to fight for their country in the war. Unfortunately, this meant that Laverne would not be home when Carol would experience the trauma that would later trigger him into killing. Laverne was gone for years and his wife, Festa, grew lonely. She was raising her three young children by herself, which I can't imagine was easy. But that being said, we don't really feel sorry for Vesta when we learn what she does. When Carol was five years old in 1943, Vesta took him on an outing with her. They went to an apartment building, and once there, Vesta left him alone in the apartment's dirty foyer. It is reported that he was left with strangers. But I'm not sure if they were people that Vesta knew, or just other people that happened to come and go from the building. Either way, super scary for a five-year-old child. And so random, it seems. Yeah. So she would bring him with her and just left him in the foyer. And this happened repetitively. It did. While her young son waited for her, Vesta got her itch scratched by many drunken soldiers. When she was done, she took Carol home and inflicted physical punishments on him, which included twisting his arms. While doing this, she threatened him with worse if he ever snitched and told his dad. And she was just doing this to get her itch scratched? She wasn't doing this for money or... She could have. There could have been money that was exchanging hands because it said multiple drunken soldiers. Yeah. And why bring your kid then? Why bring him and then threaten him? Well, why bring him just to leave him alone in the lobby? Why not just leave him alone at home? Yeah, exactly. That's bizarre. Mm -hmm. Because then you wouldn't have to abuse him after. Yeah. I think she enjoyed it, to be honest. Unfortunately, this scenario of taking Carol with her while she had extramarital affairs with other men and then gave him a beating for it afterwards would loop on repeat for quite some time. Carol later said that the punishment would increasingly get worse the longer his mom slept with other men. So like the same man? Multiple men. Oh, okay. So as time went on, the abuse got worse. Yeah. Vesta was an alcoholic, which would have made Carol's childhood even harder. I'm not sure if she developed her drinking problem while Laverne was serving in the army or if she already had it prior to his departure. When the war ended in 1945, Vesta's affairs stopped and her severe punishments for Carol lessened, but didn't stop completely. Allegedly, she was on his case all the time and almost watched in wait for the opportunity to pounce on him with a punishment. Was she like this with the other kids too? Not that I could find. Oh. So bizarre. What about him just set her off? I don't know, to be honest. I read in a few reports that she would also emotionally and mentally torment her son to the point of forcing him to dress up as a girl and then tease him about having a girl's name. What? What a dirtbag. It's like you gave him that name. Yeah. Vesta clearly missed the memo about being a safe place for her children. Someone who your children can come to for help, love and protection not someone they need protecting from. And I don't know if she did it when she was, you know, super drunk, like thought it was funny to dress him up as a girl and tease him about his name, but not cool, Vesta. Yeah, that's a dirtbag move. Mm-hmm. And that's why I said we don't feel sorry for Vesta in this story at all. Oh. And like I mentioned, I wasn't able to find out if Vesta treated all her children this way or if she just had it out for her son, Carol. Maybe she just saw something in him that triggered her. Vesta kept her son home an extra year before enrolling him in school. He started grade one at the age of seven. Why? I don't know. If she doesn't want him around and seeing what she's doing, why not send him to school on time? Or maybe she likes having him around to pick on. That's disturbing. Those Mm -hmm. are some unique family dynamics. Definitely. When people complain about being the middle child, well, at least you don't have it as bad, hopefully, as Carol did as the middle child in this family. Yeah, that's true. Unfortunately, school would not be the reprieve from his bully mother that one would hope it would be. Not with a name like Carol. Nope. The kids at school teased Carol relentlessly for having a quote-unquote girl's name. 
This was extremely upsetting to Carol and would often make him cry. I assume it just reiterated to him all the mean things he had already heard from his own mom. It would be a total trigger. Carol said, quote, The kids made quite a thing of taunting me. I felt the animosity, withdrawing more and more into myself. Until he erupts and kills one of them. Mm-hmm. Carol admitted that one day, while hiding underneath the porch at home, he blacked out, and when he awoke, he discovered that he had strangled the family's puppy to death. What? He said it gave him a sense of relief, and he began to fantasize about killing his mother. Hmm. So we have one of those trifecta factors here of killing animals, animal cruelty. Yeah. That is really interesting that he says he blacked out, but got relief from it somehow. Like, Mm -hmm. how do you get relief from something you don't even remember? Well, he came to and saw that the dog was dead. And instead of being horrified by it, felt relief. It was like a sense of power, maybe. I can see feeling powerful. And then realizing he could kill this puppy, he just kept fantasizing about killing his mom. Because she's been so cruel to him. Yeah. And even that says a lot at that young age, because as children, even when they're terribly abused... Most of them still express love and they're just yearning for that acceptance from that parent. Yeah, it's not to seek revenge on them. Right. By the age of eight, just as you guessed, Carol would reach his breaking point and take his anger out on his first victim, a boy his age named Dwayne. Carol said Dwayne was a boy who teased him nonstop. It was summer of 1946 when a group of boys decided that they would all go to the harbor to swim. The Coles were living in Richmond, California, and the boys headed to Richmond's Yacht Harbor to cool off from the summer sun in the water. Carol and Duane were both included in this group of kids who had decided to go swimming. As they approached the water, Duane couldn't resist teasing Carol. He turned to Carol and he said, quote, How does it feel to have a girl's name, Carol? Carol got in the water and waited for a moment when he and Duane were alone. Dwayne crouched near a log and then jumped up holding his nose and landed in the water. Carol scurried over to where Dwayne had just entered the water and before he could surface, Carol placed his legs on either side of Dwayne's neck and squeezed them together so Dwayne could not surface for air. Carol stood there with his hand gripped against a log for leverage, drowning Dwayne without anyone being the wiser. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So not even in a rage, like in the middle of a fight, and he just took it too far. He purposely planned to kill him. He did. Yeah. It was just as they were walking up to the water, he teased him about his name one last time. He went in the water and waited for a chance where no one was looking and he'd be alone with Dwayne. Oh, that is so crazy. Carol said, quote, I held him under till I knew he was dead. Yeah, until he stopped moving. And when I let him go, he sank. Oh, You can imagine the upset when the community learned that a little boy had drowned at the harbor. Police ruled it an accident, but Carol stayed worried that he was going to get caught for a long time afterward. He said, quote, I was afraid of the police, with reason, as I thought, but there was no remorse about Dwayne. I hated him. I was glad I stood up for myself. He also said about the incident, quote, I was primed. I had made the mental commitment I was going to get even with my mother, and things just built up and built up and became an obsession. So after he committed that murder, that's when he developed the obsession. Mm -hmm. Because he recognized he had the power. Yeah. Mm. And that's why he's meaning I was primed. Yeah. And he felt no remorse over Dwayne. And it doesn't even seem as an adult that he really has remorse over Dwayne. And I can see how it would be ruled an accident with a whole bunch of kids just playing and jumping around. And then one turns up dead. You would just, oh, nobody noticed that he didn't surface. Right. And I wonder what was going on in Carol's mind when he's watching, like, the people who discovered the body and brought Dwayne out, and they're probably trying to revive him, and the community's in mourning, everyone's upset, and he didn't feel remorse. That says a lot. Yeah. Carol continued school without anyone knowing what he had done to one of his classmates. He just went on with life, like nothing had happened. Yeah. It was just his dirty little secret. Exactly. But he wasn't too bothered by it, right? So it would have been easy for him to just... Okay, back to school the next day. Now I don't have to worry about Dwayne teasing me about my name. I always find it so interesting when a killer feels justified in what they've just done and they can just continue to carry on with their lives because they think that that was just something that they needed to do. Yeah, he felt like Dwayne deserved it. It's crazy how much they can justify their actions. Mm -hmm. But at eight, how could he even work through those emotions in his own mind that way? Mm -hmm. 
When Carol was 14, he scored 152 on an IQ test, classifying him as a genius. Despite his brilliant mind, Carol's grades averaged a D+. Instead of focusing on his studies, Carol escaped his world by robbing liquor stores and getting drunk. By grade 11, he dropped out of school. Oh, man. At age 18, he briefly worked at a factory before joining the Navy. The Navy didn't correct Carol's deviant behavior. In fact, he had to spend time in the military brig, which is like a jail, for drinking and stealing government property. So did he just have an issue with authority? No, I wouldn't say that he has an issue with authority. I think, as we've seen in a lot of serial killer cases, they have a fascination with that power of authority. And maybe that's why he joined the Navy, because that's quite common. But no, I think he was just escaping with drinking and stealing, all of that kind of stuff. He had developed some crutches. He has an issue with his mom, who had so much control over his younger life, that I'm wondering if that's why he's getting into trouble at school all the time. That's why he got in trouble in the military is because it would have been authority figures kind of laying out those guidelines and rules and he would have pushed back, right? But you think it was all because of his alcohol and drug use. I would say so more, but it could have been like that's definitely a possibility that it could have been that. I just don't see that like once he gets out of his adolescence, I don't really see that as a pattern. Okay. It's more the substance abuse then. I think so. And And just just that escape, right? Like I think kids act up for attention, that kind of thing. Like you said, having some control over his life. But I don't think it's that I have a problem with authoritative figures Mm. because he later goes to the police asking them for help. Oh, yeah. Okay. Two years later, at the age of 20, he would be dishonorably discharged from the Navy when he was arrested in San Diego for burglary and auto theft. When he returned home, Vesta happily threw his failures in his face repeatedly. Oh, of course she would. Mm -hmm. Carol worked odd jobs and had multiple petty theft charges over the next couple of years. On June 1st, 1960, at the age of 22, Carol headed out to the community's Lover's Lane, a place that young couples would go to make out. He went there alone? Mm-hmm. While at Lover's Lane, Carol approached two different couples and attacked them with a hammer. What is it with these dirtbags attacking people when they're making out? I know. It's so creepy. <laughs> Be careful where you make out, everybody. <laughs> we talked about that in my Valentine's Day case. <laughs> well, and in the Derek Todd Lee case. Yeah, it's true. Later that same month, on June 28th, Carol was convicted of assault with a deadly weapon and was sentenced to 30 days on the county work farm. And from what I understand, this is like a prison, but instead of sitting in a cell, the inmates are forced to work on a farm every day. I'm not sure if this still happens in the U.S., but it is illegal in some countries. At this point in his life, Carol was consumed by his dark thoughts. In January of 1961, Carol flagged down a patrolling police car in Richmond and told the officer that he had strong urges to rape and strangle women. This was a loud cry for help, in my opinion, and the point in this case where things should have gone differently. So wait, he's just doing his work and he flags down an officer and like, help me, I want to strangle and rape women? Yes. This was, I think, after his community work was done, after that sentence was done. He just was getting so consumed like it was all he could think about basically was I want to strangle and rape women and so instead of going out and doing that he flagged down a patrolling officer on the street and was like I need help this is what I want to do but this guy has a genius level IQ why not go seek therapy for that well he ends up he does okay yeah but this is where it starts he's just like I have to go turn myself in I have to go to a policeman because this is what I want to do okay Which, how many dirtbags will do that? Yeah, it's true. It doesn't happen a lot. No. rarely happens. I don't know if I've ever heard of that happening before they start killing. Because of his intelligence, I think Carol was self-aware enough to realize that his urges were wrong. And he didn't necessarily want to act on them. So much so that he basically turned himself in to the police. So what did they do about it? The officer suggested to Carol that he just admit himself into a mental hospital. And did he do that? He did. Okay. Yeah, Carol did. On February 2nd, 1961, still at the age of 22, Carol checked himself into the Napa State Hospital for a 90-day treatment program. While participating in this program, however, Carol didn't divulge anything about his childhood trauma and instead painted a happy childhood picture to the staff. So he wasn't really getting to the root of what his issues were. 
or letting them know that he had murdered somebody before. Exactly. They probably would have taken him a little bit more seriously had he divulged those things. True. But if I had a man coming to our treatment center saying, I want to strangle and rape women, I would take that pretty seriously. You would think. Yeah. But now they're saying like, oh, well, he has no risk factors. Well, they're just saying he had a good childhood. Mm -hmm. While at the hospital, Carol was diagnosed with antisocial sociopath personality disturbance. I'm not sure how I feel about this diagnosis. If I'm understanding it correctly, it would mean that he has no regard for right or wrong or other people. But maybe it had a different definition in the early 60s when mental health medicine was still in its infancy. They also stated that Carol had sadistic, abnormal sexual tendencies. Reportedly, some of the staff also felt like he was a possible sexual psychopath. That was a lot to digest. (laughs) Yeah. Did he act out these sexual desires other places, like before he starts to rape and murder women? No. At this point, he had not acted on them. And that's where I'm saying I'm not sure if I agree with that diagnosis because he obviously at this point did have a regard for right or wrong and other people or he wouldn't have gone to the police and to the mental health hospital for help. Right. Or were those tendencies one of the reasons he's attacking people in Lover's Lane? Oh, it probably was. Hmm. But he hadn't raped and strangled anybody. Not yet. Not yet. And I felt like this was such an interesting part of this case because he has these really strong urges and he's not really wanting to do it. If he was wanting to do it, he'd go do it. Yeah. He's asking for help. Yeah. And I totally agree with you that by asking for help, he's recognizing right from wrong by taking himself, checking himself into a mental health facility. He recognizes that the urges that he's having are wrong and that he doesn't want to do them. Yeah. He's trying to take action to prevent himself from doing that. That's an interesting situation. It really is. Carol was released at the end of March with the recommendation that he continue outside psychiatric treatment or admit himself into the Atascadero State Hospital, which he never did. A few months later, Carol was incarcerated for auto theft. While serving his six-month sentence, Carol once again requested that he receive psychiatric help. So he's serving time and he goes to the judge and says, I need psychiatric help for this. The judge who reviewed his request agreed and had him sent to the Atascadero State Hospital. At this hospital, he was diagnosed as a passive, dependent person with a facade of independence and confusion concerning sexual identification. What? The doctor there said his test results were, quote, very puzzling and contradictory. Hence my, what? I know. (laughs) And it's just so unfortunate. Like now this is twice he's put out a cry for help. And even to approach a judge and say, I need help with these urges that I'm having. He's going right to the top. He's going to a judge and asking for help. And didn't they pull up his previous file having just been in a mental health facility? Oh, I'm sure they would have. I don't know how it worked in the 60s, but I would imagine they could have access to that information. It's just so bizarre to me. Mm-hmm. And so very clearly is giving a huge call for help, but then didn't follow through on seeking counsel in the community. That's interesting. But I'm wondering if it is because he was given the impression while he was in treatment that this isn't really that big of a deal. That's why we're letting you back into the community. Yeah, go get therapy on your own. Yeah. And so would that be like a, oh, you really don't need help. It's really not as bad as you're making it out to be. Right. And it wasn't until then he was incarcerated for auto theft. He's got a lot of time. He's just alone with his thoughts. He's like, no, I do need help. And maybe as he was getting close to the end of a sentence, feeling like I don't want to be let out on the streets right now. Hmm. That's a lot of self-awareness. It really is. By the time Carol was 24, he was transferred to Stockton State Hospital, still seeking help. A doctor there recorded that Carol was afraid of the female figure and could not have intercourse with a woman who was alive. He would have to kill her first to do so. What? He diagnosed him with having a schizophrenic reaction of the chronic, undifferentiated type. Today, this is sometimes referred to as the flat effect and can include hallucinations, delusions, disorganized thinking, and reduced emotional expression. He was also diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. So where did this whole diagnosis or comment about the necrophilia come in? I don't know. He's saying he's so afraid of the female figure that he wouldn't be able to perform sexually unless the woman was dead. Yeah, but that seems so bizarre to me. I know. Had he already been killing people and having sex with them at this point? Or were those the fantasies that he was having before they talked about his sadistic sexual tendencies? And so was that what they were referring to with that diagnosis? Was that he was fantasizing about necrophilia? 
Could be. He might have admitted to that. He had not killed anybody other than that young boy up until this point. Hmm. And he also had admitted that he really fantasized about killing his mother and maybe that sexually aroused him. Maybe. And maybe that's where they're taking that from. I'm not sure. Those are some pretty specific diagnoses to make without something to back it up. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure he had to have made some sort of comments. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt that he did, to be honest. Which in and of itself is very telling of how much he is aware of what he wants and what direction he's headed. Exactly. And that's what's so mind boggling about this. He's obviously divulging some of this stuff to these doctors. He's not hiding it because he's asking for the help. So fascinating. Mm-hmm. And with all of that being said, so the doctors are giving all these diagnoses. The doctor saying he won't be able to have sex with a woman unless she's dead. And even though they're saying all of these things, six months later, they discharge Carol from the hospital without a plan. No follow-up, nothing. Just six months later, okay, we realize that you're not going to be able to have sex unless you kill a woman, but we're going to let you go. Good luck. Good luck with that. Yeah. Here's a little apple juice to go on your way. Maybe you can't keep them there forever, but have some kind of a plan in place for this guy. Yeah. The next year, Vesta purchased a bus ticket for Carol to go to Texas to visit his brother. Carol would end up staying in Texas for a little while. Sorry, wait. Was he living with mom this whole time? I believe so. I think he was incarcerated more than he wasn't. And he was in the hospital for a long time. Okay. So still being submitted maybe to that abuse? Exactly. While in Texas, Carol attempted to strangle a woman who luckily survived. So this is his first time actually strangling someone. It is believed his conscience got the better of him when on July 15th, 1963, he attempted to end his own life by overdosing on pills. He spent four days in a psychiatric ward before being released, which again speaks to him not wanting to do this. Call for help. Yeah. Surprisingly, four months later, Carol got married. He married a woman named Neville or Billy Whitworth. She was an alcoholic and worked as a stripper. This would not be a good combination for Carol. Carol described Billy as, quote, neurotic and unstable, just like me. Their marriage was described as alcohol-fueled lust and anger mixed with arrests and domestic violence. Oh, that sounds like a lovely combination. Yeah, not a healthy thing right now for him. Carol despised women that he viewed as promiscuous, like his mother was. So he married a stripper? Yeah, that is literally what I have next. That I think it's so interesting that he married someone who had a lot in common with his mom and who went by a predominantly male name. We have Carol and Billy. Oh, I never even picked up on that. Mm -hmm. Her name is Neville Whitworth, but she goes by Billy. And so was she the dominant one? I think it was just a dumpster fire. I don't think one was dominant over the other. They were both alcoholics. They're fighting. It's just very intense. Maybe Freud's right. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe you are always seeking your mom. I hope not. (laughs) Their marriage lasted a few months shy of two years. On August 19th, 1965... Carol set the motel where they were living on fire. Oh, no. He believed that his wife, Billy, was sleeping with other men at the motel. He was arrested and sentenced to two years in prison for arson, but wouldn't serve his full time. He was released after serving 17 months. What? After that, Carol drifted from place to place and continued to rack up his criminal record. I'm not even mentioning all of it. In May of 1967, Carol broke into a home in Lake Ozark, Missouri, and tried to strangle an 11-year-old girl while she slept in her bed. What? I cannot imagine how scary that would have been for that little girl and her family. And just seems so out of the blue. Yeah. I get if he was going to go after somebody like his mom, a grown-up, but why an 11-year-old? It seems so random. Yeah. And I'll talk about this in a little bit, but later Carol does allude to the fact that this is the one that haunted him. Because it was out of character. It wasn't his target victim. Seems so random. Carol pled guilty to get a reduced sentence of five years in prison. However, as we see so often in serial killer cases, he was released on parole just three years later. And interestingly, Carol later admitted in an interview that even he felt like a sentence of only five years for what he did wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to traumatize an 11-year-old. So like you said, this self-awareness, even he himself knows this is ridiculous that I keep getting out of jail. Huh. He continued to drift from state to state and attempted twice more to strangle two different women 
who both thankfully survived. On September 19, 1970, Carol again walked into a police station, this time in Nevada, and surrendered himself, telling the officers that he was fighting an urge to kill women. What? He's going again. Does he check himself into a mental hospital this time, too? Well, this time they charged him with disorderly conduct and had him committed to the Sparks Nevada State Hospital. Here, he was treated by Dr. Peebles. So Dr. Peebles diagnosed Carol with antisocial personality, alcoholism, and a compulsion to strangle and rape attractive women. Sounds like what he's been telling everybody so far. Mm -hmm. It seems like even we could have come up with that diagnosis. Yep. But, and this is why I left in Dr. Peebles' name, because I can't believe that this is what he says later. And this is a tipping point for Carol. For some wild reason, Dr. Peebles later recanted his diagnosis of Carol. He's like, nope, nope, that was wrong. Instead, he stated that Carol was just highly manipulative and used his criminal record and threats of violence as a way to acquire shelter when he was out of money. He basically called Carol's bluff implied he was abusing the system, discharged him, and sent him on his merry way on a bus back to California. Did that happen to coincide with when their beds were full? I don't know. But this would ultimately be a decision with deadly consequences. That is wild. Did he make any statements later on after Carol was caught? I'm sure he hid under a rock after they find out what Carol goes on to do. Oh, man. I would not want to be Dr. Peebles and read about this later. That's brutal. Carol himself admitted that at this point, he was worse than ever. And after this happened, he had basically given up on seeking help. He said, quote, My urges were stronger than ever, but I wasn't concerned about it anymore. I just said to heck with it and waited to see what would happen. Well, nobody else seems very concerned about it. So yeah. why should he be concerned? Exactly. He's gone over and over and over. And now this last doctor is basically calling his bluff and saying, you're just being a pain in the butt manipulator. Get out of here. Wow. So he's throwing up his hands now and he's like, okay, I tried. And he really did. How many times did he try? (laughs) That is insane. These murders that we're going to now talk about should never have happened. As we start to go over some of the many murders of Carol's that took place, I apologize that there isn't a lot known about each of his victims, as a lot of what we know is the little that Carol later revealed in his confession. Because of the lack of information, we will be going through them at a little bit of a faster speed than I would have liked to, and Carol would later admit that he picked most of his victims because he viewed them as unfaithful women, just like his mother had been. These poor women would act like a proxy for his mother when he killed them. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were promiscuous women, just that Carol viewed them as such. Hmm. So this is how he's going to get his revenge on his mom. Yep. And I also want to note that the timeline was a little wonky from account to account, but I did my best to put them in the correct order. The important part is that each of these women did fall victim to Carol and his sadistic ways. And could have been prevented. Mm -hmm. On May 7th, 1971, Carol picked up a 39-year-old woman named Essie L. Buck from a tavern in San Diego. I'm assuming his deviant urge to kill a woman became more than he could handle when he decided to end Essie's life. While still inside his car, Carol strangled Essie to death. After ending her life, he placed her body in the trunk of his car. Carol then proceeded to drive around with Essie in his trunk for two days before discarding her naked body on May 9th, the day of his 33rd birthday. About killing Essie, Carol said, quote, I felt nothing, not elation, guilt, or any of the feelings thought to appease someone like me. Just cold nothing. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. So not any sense of relief, like when he killed the puppy? Yep, no remorse, just nothing. No elation, like, oh, he finally did it? No. Oh, that is not what I would expect. No, me either. And so why does he go on to kill again then? Well, the urge hasn't gone away. He still has that urge, and maybe he continues to seek that feeling of elation or relief or whatever it would be. But it didn't do it for him. No, it didn't. But he's going to still seek that. Huh. Because only two weeks after discarding Essie, Carol met a woman named Wilma and strangled her to death as well. This time, he buried her body just outside of San Ysidro in a wooded area. Her remains would never be found. Only a week later, he strangled and killed a third woman. Her identity is still unknown. Clearly, Carol was escalating. And it just goes to show the lack of remorse when he can't even remember their names. Oh, 
Absolutely. He doesn't even give it a second thought. He's like, whatever. It was just some girl. Mm -hmm. He might not have even asked that one her name. Wow. And the other one, all he knew is she was Wilma. That was it. Yeah. Shortly after killing the third woman, Carol was arrested for theft and drunk driving. He was sent to prison, but was released nine months later in March of 1972. After being released, Carol drove to San Ysidro and picked up two unsuspecting women. They had been drinking together in a bar until Carol convinced them to go a few miles outside of town with him to continue drinking. And this is how he was determining if they're promiscuous or not, if they were willing to go with him? It varies from situation to situation. Okay. He murdered one of them with a hammer and strangled the other. Oh, a hammer. Yeah. You know that I hate the thought of a hammer. He said when one of the women went to relieve herself, he took that opportunity to kill the other one. And then when that first lady returned from going pee, he killed her too. And I assume this is why he used the hammer, to make it a quicker experience so she was for sure dead before the other woman returned from going to the bathroom. Huh. Targeting two women at the same time suggests to me that he was growing in confidence. He buried both women in the desert, and neither one of them were ever found or identified. So by this time, is he starting to feel anything after he kills them? Like any elation or any relief? He doesn't really speak to that yet. Huh. You're going to have a lot of huffs. <laughs> I know, it's a wild case. It's totally a sidetrack. Is it because your husband's a carpenter that you fear the hammer so much? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> The hammer really scares me. Yeah. (laughs) See, and mine's the axe. Like that firefighter axe that has both sides. That one's freaky. (laughs) We might be on to something here. (laughs) Do we secretly fear our husbands? (laughs) Those tools could actually be used against us. (laughs) Do you keep one under your bed? No, I should. Yeah. Forget the baseball bat. Yeah. I need one in my car, too. I think I did have one in my car for a while, right by the door. (laughs) So I could just grab it if I needed to. <laughs> because honestly, like you could break a bone with one swing. Like you can do so yeah. much damage with a hammer. Yeah, but you'd have to get pretty close. Like at least with a baseball bat, you're a good, you know, two feet away from somebody. True. I saw a video where they said if you have a bat by your door to put a sock over it. Because what will happen a lot if you go to hit someone with a bat, they can grab it. And then get the bat away from you, especially a woman versus a man. So if you have a sock on the end of the bat, when they go to grab the bat, you can pull it out and they're left with the sock and then you just smack them as hard as you can. That's a good idea. Yeah. So if you have a bat as a form of protection, put a sock on it. Self-defense lessons by Melissa and Christy. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, back to the case. Okay. (laughs) During the summer of 1972, Carol met a barmaid named Diana Faye Younglove Paschal. And the two moved in with one another right away. A year later, Carol and Diana were married, despite both having multiple affairs on the other. They were both alcoholics and often fought. Carol would allegedly go off on his own for days at a time without Diana. It is believed that he was murdering more women during these days away. I'm so confused with this guy. So he's picking these really volatile relationships. Yeah. Why the need for a relationship if it's so volatile? Well, he gets married three times. Hmm. He just can't be fulfilled in any way then, hey? No. A year after being married, Carol and Diana moved from San Diego to Las Vegas to try and start fresh with their relationship. They're like, maybe we just need a change of scenery. And I'm curious, with all of his relationships, so he had that one psychiatrist that said he wouldn't be able to really reach climax without the woman being dead. But obviously he goes on to have three marriages, so... Oh, yeah. And it sounds, even just by the reports of other women and stuff in the cases, that there was no problem there. Huh. So that diagnosis was not correct. He could perform sexually. Yeah. Moving to Vegas, however, would not be the fresh start that they had hoped. And both of them, unsurprisingly, did continue to step out on one another. In Las Vegas, Carol shockingly got a job transporting coins from the local airport to various casinos. I don't know how he got that job. With his criminal record? That sounds so odd. Right? And I'm sure you can imagine how well this worked out for his employers. I assume they did not do a background check on Carol. Staying true to being a murderous thief, Carol succumbed to the temptation and stole an entire shipment of coins. To avoid being caught, he fled to Wyoming and left his wife Diana behind in Las Vegas. (laughs) How do you (laughs) offload that much money in coins? I don't know. I don't think he was too worried about it, but he had, like, think how much money. Coins add up. Mm -hmm. A whole truckload of coins, that was a lot. 
I'm pretty sure it wasn't hard to follow up on who took the truckload of coins. Oh, they knew it was him. Yeah. Yeah. But he fled to Wyoming. In Wyoming, Carol met Merlene Teepee Hammer. They got together and started to party. Carol noticed a wedding ring on her finger. When Merlene suggested that they have sex, Carol strangled her to death and left her body on top of a sleeping bag on a nearby hill. Merlene's body was found the next day on August 9th, 1975. Okay, maybe she's a widow. I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt, Christy. Yeah, and even if she is married and she's asking him to have sex, that's no reason for him to murder her. True. When her body was found, that prompted Carol to leave the state. He's like, Kate, I'm getting out of here. Carol decided, after this, to check himself into a detox center. But he couldn't help being a dirtbag when he stole a check from a fellow patient for $1,500 and tried to cash it for himself. Today, that would be worth over 8,000 US dollars or almost 11,000 Canadian. The next year, he was charged with mail theft and was released on bail. Carol tried to jump bail and flee, but was captured and slapped with more charges, like unlawful flight. He was sentenced to one year in prison. I believe while he was incarcerated, police discovered the body of a 26-year-old sex worker named Kathleen Bloom. She too had been strangled to death and was one of Carol's victims. Carol dumped her body in a stranger's backyard. She was discovered on May 14, 1977. After being released, he was charged with auto theft in Las Vegas, but was let out on bail. Carol took advantage of his freedom and took off to Oklahoma City. The night before Thanksgiving in 1977, Carol agreed to hook up with a woman he met at a topless bar. When he woke in the morning, Carol claimed that he discovered the woman dead in his bathtub. Oh, so he's not even remembering now. This one is the one that he says he doesn't remember. And this one's really horrific. He said both of her feet and her dismembered right arm were in his fridge and that a steak cut out of her buttocks muscle was sitting in a pan on his stove. No. There was also a plate on the table with cooked meat on it. He said he had no recollection of what happened, but he used kitchen knives and a hacksaw to finish cutting up her remains. He placed the parts in garbage bags and threw them in the city dump. Carol said about this, quote, Somewhere in the middle of our making love, the booze kicked in or else my mind went blank. I can't say which. That day was something else. So he does remember or he doesn't remember at all? He remembers waking up and seeing her body partially dismembered. And so we don't know if he consumed any of her or not. Just that's what had happened. But he had blacked out even as a kid. In 1978, Carol spent another six months in jail, but was released with three years of probation. Part of his probation was that he had to have full-time employment and attend an alcoholic rehabilitation program. We have said it before, but why do people like Carol continue to get chance after chance when it comes to the law? They didn't know that he was murdering women yet, but his rap sheet was growing immensely, and he had openly admitted his murderous urges. Yeah, that is always so bizarre to me. Yeah. He just keeps getting slapped with these little sentences, and then they let him out early. He goes on probation, breaks that, gets another little light sentence. He's fleeing from state to state and getting away with it. Is it possible that because he's going state to state that they don't know about his previous convictions, and that's why they're giving him little slaps on the wrist? Could be. It's not the age of technology where they're sharing all of that information state to state yet. Right. And this is the 70s, so that could have been part of it. You're right. Okay. When Carol was released from jail on June 16, 1978, he reunited with his second wife, Diana. He continued to break the law in his parole agreement, but was allowed to go free after paying a $2,000 bond. I wonder how that conversation went. Oh, sorry for, you know, ditching you. Right? But yeah, they reunited. She was willing to get back together. On August 27th of 1979, Carol met a 39-year-old woman named Bonnie Sue O'Neill. They spent the evening having sex at the appliance shop where he worked. In the morning, Carol claimed that Bonnie told him she had to call her husband. Oh no. This admission of infidelity was enough of a trigger to cause Carol to strangle her. He viewed her to be just like his mother. He placed her clothing in a garbage can behind the building that they were in and dumped her body out in the back. Just out back of where he works. Mm -hmm. So not even trying to hide no. it at all. No, I think subconsciously he's wanting to get caught. I think he's breaking the law. He's doing all these things. He's tried to turn himself in. I think even if this part now is subconsciously, I think he's wanting it. He's wanting them to find out what he's doing. Less than a month later, Carol murdered his wife, Diana. Oh, that's surprising. I know. She was 35 years old at the time. 
After killing her, he wrapped her body in blankets and stuffed her in their closet. And just left her there. Yep. Okay, this one's going to lead right to him. It does. Eight days later, a neighbor saw Carol digging what looked like a grave in the crawl space under his house. The neighbor called the police. Police came to investigate and found Diana's body in the closet. In some mind-blowing scenario, police didn't think that Carol murdered his wife. What? The husband's always the first suspect. I know. And her death was ruled an accidental alcohol poisoning. Her blood alcohol levels were tested and they were four times the legal limit. So then knowing that, did Carol make up a story and try to cover up his tracks and say, yeah, she drank herself to death and then I wrapped her in the blankets? I don't know what story, but whatever story he told them, they ate it up. Which is so fascinating to me because why not cop to that murder and get the help that you need then? Then you'll be locked away. Right. He didn't. That is so bizarre. They just saw her tox report and went with it. So they didn't find any ligature marks around her neck? No, and we're going to talk about that. He masters his craft to where there's not marks left on their neck. Ooh. After getting away with murder again, Carol went back to Vegas and began driving a truck for a religious charity. No. He would pick up donations of secondhand items like clothing. And did he steal from that truck too? Not that I heard of, but maybe if he found a pair of pants he liked, he probably took them. (laughs) On November 3rd, 1979, he killed 50-year-old Marie Cushman inside the Kabash Hotel. Her body was found by the hotel maid. Unfortunately, eyewitnesses described two suspects for this murder, neither one of them resembling Carol's appearance. Oh, And I thought, he's getting so brash right now. Like, he's just leaving her in the hotel, not even trying to cover it up. He murdered his wife and left her in the closet and was not considered a suspect. <laughs> No wonder he's brazen. Yeah, he's probably feeling pretty invincible right now. The following month on December 16th, Carol married one of his co-workers and decided to take her on a honeymoon. So this is now his third marriage. I want to know how he's talking all these women into marrying him. Right? Well, he's really smart. He's probably got it figured out. Well, and one of the psychologists report did say he was manipulative. True. Apparently, he continued to have sex with women he would pick up at the bars. I feel like this is so ironic given how he felt so strongly about his mother's infidelities, but had no problem committing those same infidelities. Yeah, he's a huge hypocrite. Totally. While on their honeymoon, he was picked up for not having a valid driver's license. When the police ran his name, they saw all his parole violations, and he was sent to the medical center for federal prisoners. Less than a year later, though, on October 4th, 1980, he was released and sent back to Dallas, Texas. By the end of the next month, Carol killed three more women. Oh, man. So many times they could have caught him. Yeah. It's almost like he has a reserved cell at all the jails, right? Mm -hmm. For how many times he's gone. On November 12th, police discovered the body of 32-year-old Wanda Faye Roberts. She was found on Bryan Street with her clothing removed from the waist down. Her shirt had been torn open and she had clear bruises around her neck caused by strangulation. And this is where I was going to put in that apparently it was quite rare for Carol to leave any bruises on his victims. Like I said, at this point, he had mastered his craft. He could strangle them without leaving bruises. So how is he doing it? I don't know. But Wanda did have bruises. Wanda's pants were found 20 feet away in a well-treated area. Drag marks and abrasions to her body suggested that she had been drug across the dirt and gravel after she was killed and stripped. She was not sexually assaulted, but did have a high amount of alcohol in her blood. When police questioned staff at the nearby bars, they were able to determine that Wanda had been a regular at one of the bars and was seen leaving with a guy named Eddie, Carol's nickname based on his middle name, which was Edward. Police now had a name, but the name Eddie didn't link Carol to the murder. 18 days later, police would finally catch Carol in the act. What? Late at night on November 30th, Sally Thompson's two sons arrived at her apartment. They were bringing a girlfriend over to meet their mom. When they got to her house, they could tell that she was home. Lights were on, and they could hear the TV. However, she didn't answer the door. When they managed to get inside the house, they saw Carol standing there. He stunk of whiskey and seemed disoriented. The two sons found their mother dead on the floor beside the couch. Her jeans and underwear were pulled down around her ankles. Frightened, the boys ran to a neighbor's house to call the police. When the police arrived, Carol went with them without a fight. He appeared extremely intoxicated. 
Carroll later admitted that he sometimes hardly remembered his killings because of how much he had to drink. When questioned about Sally's death, Carol told police that he had met her at a bar, they agreed to go back to her place for sex, and then as they were undressing, she just collapsed. So he's lying. Yeah. No signs of violence, though, were found on her body, and police suspected that she died of either a drug or alcohol overdose and released Carol. Her death was ruled as indeterminate. And again, this is an opportunity that he's turned himself in so many times before, Mm -hmm. saying that I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. He has the opportunity again to turn himself in and say, yeah, I did it. And not to lie. No, and he chose to lie. Yeah. It's pretty bewildering. The next day, Detective Robinson, who had been at the scene of the crime, decided to review Sally's file. It was then that he realized that Carol's middle name was Edward and could be shortened to Eddie. He also discovered that Carol was living in a halfway house for paroled felons and that this halfway house was close to the spot where Wanda was murdered. The detective then pulled his criminal record and decided he needed to bring Carol back in for questioning. Was it some of the criminal record that it said he had turned himself in for having urges to kill women? I don't know what he found, but thankfully this detective finally starts to put things together and then is like, I need to look more into this man. Yeah. And imagine his surprise when he actually looks at his record. Yeah, no kidding. Police picked up Carol at the warehouse that he was employed at and took him into custody. Carol maintained his story about Sally's death and admitted to police that he knew Wanda and did fight with her the night she died, but denied having anything to do with it. Because that one they know was a murder. There was that bruising on her neck. Mm -hmm. During this interview, Detective Robinson got called away because of a shooting that involved another officer. Police said that Carol seemed disappointed that Robinson was about to leave. So he decided to just start confessing to murder. Oh, no. He's like, seriously, you're going to leave? Like, okay, let me tell you. He's just so tired of nobody listening to his story. Yeah. And basically, like, do I honestly have to do your guys' job for you? I believe he was just done and was likely as shocked as well about not ever getting caught or held responsible for his actions. He could just tell an easy little lie. Like, oh, no, she just we were about to have sex and she collapsed. And they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. See ya. And he's even probably thinking like, seriously? Except if he was really feeling that way, why wouldn't he just admit it in the first place? Was that his big cathartic moment? Was getting caught? That's what he was after? I don't know. He talks a lot about not really having much feeling, being indifferent to it. And so kind of like, well, and he had said he was kind of giving up getting help. So I'll just keep doing it so you guys figure it out. And it wasn't really a big cathartic moment. He was just like, you're getting called away on another call. Like, let's just get this done and over with. He was just done. I think he was just done. So bizarre, though. Right? Carol started to give details about a woman he had murdered. As he got further into the story, police realized that he wasn't talking about Sally or Wanda's murders. This was another one that they had no idea about. Oh, could you imagine the police coming to that realization? Yeah, checking their nose like, wait, what? Looking at each other like, oh my gosh, this is a third murder he's talking about. Prior to murdering Sally and Wanda on November 9th, Carol murdered 52-year-old Dorothy King inside her own apartment. She was found two days later, but her death was ruled an alcohol overdose and no foul play was suspected. There must have been so many alcohol overdoses happening. There must have been. And he's living where there's like a halfway house, like it's maybe not the best area for that kind of thing either. Which makes you wonder, is that why the cases were being closed so quickly and not really investigated? Was it the population? Could have been. That's a good point. I'm not going to throw out that accusation, but it could have been. We've seen that definitely happen in multiple cases. Yeah, because that kind of thing does happen. It does. When Detective Robinson returned from the shooting that he had been called out on, he said to Carol, quote, Now about that girl in the bar, tell me about her. And Carol eerily replied, quote, which one? Oh, no. So this is like, ding, ding, ding. We got to find out all the information now. Mm -hmm. For me, if I was that detective, like my heart would have sunk. I would have been like, oh, boy, they were in for a ride. Yeah, that's wild. Carol confessed to six more murders at that time and admitted that he sometimes had sex with the women after they were deceased. So that psychologist from so long ago was right. But he was able to perform without that as well. Mm -hmm. Looking into these women's deaths, it was hard to believe that some of their causes of death were murder. Lieutenant John Gregory, chief of San Diego's homicide squad, later said, quote, 
The coroner conducted thorough autopsies, and the man would have to have been some sort of expert to have strangled these women without leaving any bruise marks. Carol was examined by psychiatrists in Dallas and was deemed competent to stand trial. He had a three-day trial starting on April 6, 1981 in Dallas. During his trial, he finally told about his abusive childhood and admitted that he killed the women as a way to kill his mother. Carol was convicted of three counts of murder and was sentenced to life imprisonment. Apparently, they felt like his confession about the woman he claimed to have cannibalized was a lie and was because he tended to grossly exaggerate. So he stretched the truth. That's what they're believing, but I don't know why he would lie. He's been truthful about all of his other victims. After two years of being incarcerated in Huntsville, Texas State Prison, Carroll made a plan to try and escape. He stole food dye to try and dye his uniform a different color and had stockpiled Tabasco sauce to put on his shoes to throw any tracking dogs off his scent. Allegedly, the night before his planned escape, Carroll was injured in an accident at the prison woodshop and was transferred to a new facility. Oh, man. The night before. (laughs) Thank goodness. Yeah. In January of 1984, Carroll received a letter from California informing him that his mother had passed away. People commented that Carroll changed after receiving this news. He just wasn't the same. He was happier or sadder? They did not say, just that he was never the same. Hmm. The next month, on February 15th, Nevada announced their formal intent to extradite Carroll and try him on capital murder charges for his killings in Las Vegas. Carroll didn't fight the extradition and was sent to Nevada on April 9th. He was allegedly ready to die. He was probably hoping for it. Yeah, I think he was at this point after his escape attempt was botched. He's like, hey, I'm done. Once in Nevada, he was examined by three different psychiatrists and all deemed him fit to stand trial. On August 16th, Carroll pled guilty to two counts of first-degree murder. Carroll's legal team tried to object, saying that Carroll was trying to commit legal suicide and was therefore undermining the court. Carroll stated, quote, I believe in capital punishment. There is nothing good about me. A three-panel judge agreed. Carroll was found guilty of first-degree murder for Marie Cushman and Kathleen Bloom. He was given the death penalty for the murder of Marie, but because Nevada did not have the death penalty in 1977, when Kathleen was murdered, he could not be given a death sentence for her murder. Hmm. I wonder how many times that defense has been tried. I haven't heard that one before. Mm-hmm. And a side note about his trial, officers from San Diego, Las Vegas, Dallas, Missouri, and Wyoming attended the trial and testified to confirm that Carroll was a serial killer. And when Carroll testified, he reminded the judge that he would be eligible for parole in Texas in about five years. And if he wasn't released, he would escape. The part about his parole coming up in five years was actually false, but Carroll was clearly wanting to be found guilty. When he received the death penalty, Carroll thanked the judge. In a final interview, he was asked why he wouldn't fight for his life. And Carroll said, quote, I just don't care to. He also admitted that he thought he deserved to die because of his crimes. Anti-death penalty campaigners tried to fight his death sentence, but Carroll protested. Altogether, Carroll officially confessed to at least 13 murders, but it is believed that he confessed to and killed up to 35 people. Wow. And I believe it probably was higher than 13. From what you've told us, it does sound like it could be higher. In true dirtbag fashion, Carroll didn't really admit to feeling any remorse and said that if he was given the opportunity, he would kill again. He said, quote, I was drunk, but that's still not an excuse. I was in my right mind, I knew exactly what I was doing, and I'm not sorry for what I did, and I have no remorse. This has been a very frightening experience for me because I know that I would kill again and everything like this. And it seems anymore no woman is safe with me. So it sounds like he believes that this is just the way he is. This is how he was born or this is how he was made and he had no ability to change it. Right. And I think he felt justified in finally doing it because he had tried so hard to get the help to stop it from Mm -hmm. happening. In that final interview that I was talking about, he was asked, you know, do you feel sorry? And he's like, yeah, I do. And that's when he said that he felt the most remorseful about the attack he made on the 11-year-old girl. Hmm. But he never explained why he chose her or why he attacked her. No, he just said he felt bad because he basically ruined her life. Yeah. That's not a quote of what he said, but basically that that's what he was saying. And she was a child. So that was the only one that he really felt sorry for. Carol was transferred from Las Vegas prison to Nevada State Prison in Carson City on November 6, 1984 to await death. 
The next morning after his transfer, the prison announced that the death chamber that had been out of service because of a gas leak was fixed and ready to go. The state legislators had voted to switch to lethal injection in 1983, saving $20,000 to repair the gas. Carroll was given December 6 as his death date, one month after arriving at the Carson City Prison. So he gets there, and the very next day they're like, guess what? Our death chamber is working! Which it sounds like he would have been happy about. I think so. Which just seems so wrong to make the murderer happy. I know. I think he just wanted to be put out of his misery. Mm -hmm. Because this was an internal struggle that he obviously had. While he waited, Carol wrote an autobiography. He also gave permission for a Las Vegas neurosurgeon to study his brain after he was dead to see if they could figure out why he was so violent. And unfortunately, I couldn't find out any information about that study or if it even happened. But I think we should be studying more brains like this. Carol spent his final hours writing letters, watching TV, reading, and playing cards with the prison chaplain. He made a final confession and took communion. Apparently, he had converted to the Catholic religion while incarcerated. His last meal consisted of fried shrimp, clam chowder, french fries, and a tossed salad with French dressing. For dessert, he ate cookies and candy. Prior to entering the death chamber, Carol was given two injections of Valium, the second one just 10 minutes prior to entering. Wearing blue denim, a short sleeve blue prison shirt, and tennis shoes without laces, Carol entered the death chamber at 1.43 a.m. on December 6, 1985. He was observed as being calm and offered no final statement. <laughs> With all the Valium, I'm not surprised. That's true. <laughs> He had expressed earlier that he was ready to go, but was worried about experiencing any pain. At 2.05 a.m., he was lifted onto a table by four guards and secured to the table. He then had needles inserted into both of his arms. He did not seem to panic, but reportedly blinked repeatedly at a quickened pace. The warden gave the signal, and the triple drug lethal concoction was injected into Carol's bloodstream. He convulsed two minutes later. He coughed and gasped for breath. His chest heaved and his head slowly arched back and then stopped. His lips and eyes were slightly opened. He was officially pronounced dead three minutes later. The entire ordeal took five minutes. He was the first man to die of lethal injection in the state of Nevada. None of his family attended the execution. Prior to his death, when asked if he was nervous about being the first to be executed in the state of Nevada by lethal injection because it might hurt, he said, quote, If I said I wasn't concerned about that, I'd be lying. Because everyone wants to go the, you know, the easiest, most comfortable way. Yeah, I'm sure his victims did too. That's exactly what I wrote. I'm sure your victims wanted to go that way too. <laughs> that kind of thing always just gets under my skin when they say stuff like that. Well, it's just so ironic that he was concerned about feeling pain in his final moments. And yet that's what he inflicted on his victims. Right. And didn't feel any remorse about it. Nope. I'm sure being strangled to death was not a nice way to go. No. But it was because it was the first prisoner to be executed that way. They didn't really know how he mm -hmm. was going to react. Sounds like it went pretty textbook, though. It did. I will end with one last quote by Carol. He said, quote, I think my crimes deserve the death penalty. Why prolong a despicable person's life who acted as judge, jury, and executioner to the people he murdered without regard to the victim? I know I'll kill again if I get out of prison. No woman is safe with me. I'm a danger to society. And that is the case of a man who felt no remorse, yet was conflicted about his desire to kill women he felt were like his cheating mother. The incredibly dangerous dirtbag who repeatedly kept being released to prey on more victims, a monster failed by the system, Carol Edward Cole. That's such a sad story, because it sounds like he had enough reflection to know what kind of things he was capable of, and it was just never recognized. Yeah. I feel like this story should not have happened. Those yeah. poor women should not have been murdered. It is always so sad when you see so many times that they could have caught him and he just keeps getting out. And this one is made even worse because he was aware too. Yeah, he's literally telling them, I'm going to kill women. I'm going to strangle women. I'm going to rape women. Oh, just so frustrating. Yeah. That Dr. Peebles. <laughs> I really want to find out what happened to him later. Yeah, I don't know. I'd be changing my name if it were me. But that's it for me today. I hope that you'll all decide to join us next week when Melissa will bring us another case. And it's a crazy one. Until then. See ya. Bye.
I got finished talking. Yeah. No, I got to finish eating. And then I got to talk. Hopefully we get it right this time. There's got to be at least one time that we get it right, right? <laughs> think faster, Melissa. Think faster. <laughs> Carol was bone- boned. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would explain his first murder. <laughs> I'm just trying to avoid getting myself into trouble here. <laughs> Atascadero. Into the Atticus- Atascadero. And sent him to the Attica, and sent him to the Atticascadero. <laughs> See, this is what I'm fearful if we ever did a live. <laughs> we would be like, get on with the story. We're like, well, we warned you. <laughs> that did not even come into my brain. <laughs> I did not picture that, but I do now. In Wyoming, Carol met. Wyoming or Wyoming? Wyoming. Wyoming? Wyoming. Wyoming? Yeah. You call it Wyoming? Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I've never heard it Wyoming. It just sounds weird to me. And I've never heard it Wyoming. Oh, you're right. Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Honey, do we need to take a break? Now I have to try and say Wyoming without laughing. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know? And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.